We are in the process of going through a uh, study of the pastoral letters, and we are in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Um, Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus at Paul's request. There have been problems, uh, strange, unbiblical teaching being done at the church, some even by those who are elders in the church. So as Paul gives Timothy instruction about what he is to do, what he's at, what, what he, how he's directing him, what we get at the same time is instructions really on how a local church should be rightly ordered. In the first chapter, Paul took some time to point out the teachings that needed to be addressed, but his major emphasis is that on what should be taught. He said the goal of instruction should be love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So a focus on love for God and a love for people um, needs to be focused on. And the only way that can happen is really through a focus on the gospel. God's law and the gospel work hand in hand. The law, which is also spoken of in chapter 1, the law points out our sin. It shows us that we deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation, which points us to the gospel because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if it's the Lord Jesus himself who actually changes our hearts so that we can see our sin, first off, but then also see the hope that we have in Christ and incline us toward faith. Paul gave himself as an example of one who was a notorious sinner. But God in his grace and his mercy came to Paul, inclined him toward faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, as Paul thought about the gospel and the, the way his own life had been transformed by the Lord, he breaks out into praise to the Lord, which is verse 17. He says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is just a helpful, such an, a helpful and important example that we have from, uh, from Paul because he's adamant all through this letter, really all through all three of these letters, adamant that sound doctrine, sound teaching must be prominent in the local church. But we see in Paul that as, as, as much as he is just adamant about the need for sound doctrine, he wants it to be a doctrine, needs to be a doctrine that actually changes our hearts what actually leads us in, to be people who love the Lord and praise the Lord and have affection for the Lord. And we see that just exemplified in Paul himself. Well, at this point then, Paul gets back to instructions to Timothy. He's been talking about his own salvation, his own calling to ministry. Now he's speaking about Timothy's calling. So we're looking at verses 18 through 20 of 1 Timothy 1. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. In these verses... Paul refers to Timothy's calling as a minister. And then he uses Timothy really as an example for all of us to learn from 
about how we all are to fight the good fight of faith, just like Timothy was supposed to as well. And through it all, once again, we're getting instructions on things that are pertinent to every local church. So first main point that we see from verse 18 is this. Timothy is an example of one being called into ministry based on a God-given desire and affirmation by the church. In verse 18, Paul speaks of a prophecy that was made concerning Timothy. We aren't told what that was, but he talks about there being a prophecy. Well, that's connected to what we see over in chapter 4, verse 14, when he says this to Timothy, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery or by the elders. We know from Acts chapter 16 that Timothy was well spoken of by, by the brethren uh, from his hometown in Lystra and the neighboring town of Iconium. Timothy had clearly shown himself uh, at a young age as being a man of character, and he also had a desire to join with Paul in ministry, so that's what happened. He actually joined Paul's mission team, became one of his fellow workers. So there must have been a commissioning service at this time, similar to what we would call ordination to ministry. That's what Paul is referring to, I think, here in verse 18, and also over in chapter 4, verse 14. The gift of giving prophecies from the Lord was still active at this time in the history of the church. So in the process of acknowledging Timothy's call to ministry and seeking to encourage him, a prophecy was given that was directed toward Timothy to encourage him in some manner. Again, we're not told what that prophecy was. We see over in chapter 4 that a spiritual gift was imparted to him at this time. We also see there were a number of uh, elders from local churches who laid hands on Timothy and prayed for him. So Paul is calling on Timothy to remember these things. This is in the context, of course, of being given a difficult assignment as a pastor. He was to confront teachers, some of who were even elders, over the strange doctrines that they were teaching in the church. So Timothy needs to remember that he was called out by God to serve the Lord. And in this case, that service includes being the pastor of this particular church. He was going to have to have some very difficult conversations. He was going to have to stand firm when he preached the gospel. He was going to have to deal with people being upset with him. But God has called him to this ministry and will give him the strength and will give him the courage that he needs for it. Now, there's some principles here that really are still followed when it comes to considering a person's call to ministry. First, there needs to be a desire for ministry. I'm making an assumption here that Timothy wanted to go with Paul when he was invited to join the mission team. It seems logical. We also see this requirement of a desire shown up down in chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, where he says it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, pastor, it's a fine work that he desires to do. So the, 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 the aspiration, the desire to be an elder, to be a pastor, is seen here as something given by God, uh, spoken of as a, as a good thing. But having a desire to be a pastor is not sufficient in itself. There has to be affirmation by the church. From a couple ways. In Timothy's case, we're told, like I said, in Acts 16, 
that brothers from the local church who knew him spoke well of him. This was in the context of serving as a faithful worker with Paul. In 1 Timothy 4, we see that various elders laid hands on Timothy, commissioning him for ministry. So there were elders who knew Timothy and affirmed his calling into ministry. That's important. Having the desire to serve is great, but there has to be affirmation as well from leaders in the congregation and the church. And not just the leaders. There's a second way in which the church is involved here. The members of the congregation are also involved. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, which we'll get to in uh, coming weeks, there are character qualities that are laid out that are to be looked for to someone who aspires to be an elder, to aspires to be a pastor. And it's ultimately the members of the local church who are going to examine that prospective elder and make the final determination on whether he is biblically qualified to serve in their particular church. So once again, Paul is giving us insight into the proper ordering of a local church. So one who is called into ministry has a God-given desire to do so, and that calling is to be affirmed by the congregation. Now from there, Paul gives further exhortation to Timothy that we can learn from as well. So read again verse 18 and through the first part of 19. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. So our second point is this. Not only ministers, but all believers are called to Christian perseverance by fighting the good fight of faith. <clears throat> Paul is calling Timothy to remember his calling in the ministry, but there's way more to it than that. The only way that he's going to be able to please the Lord in what he does is if he keeps faith and keeps a good conscience. As a pastor, Timothy certainly had to do that. Paul even speaks of it as a command there in verse 18. I'm entrusting this command to you. But in reality, this is something every Christian has to do. I mean, we will never stand firm in our faith if we don't do these two things that Paul's talking about. That's because, as he says, the Christian life is a fight. He talks about fighting the good fight. When we think of a fight, we think of conflict, struggle because of something going on, maybe an enemy of some sort. It could be a battle that we deal with because of a health issue, a health concern that's going on. It could be challenges in relationships. It could be conflict within ourselves. It could be because something or someone is actually threatening to do us bodily harm. So those are kind of the, the general ideas of, of a fight. Well, what are the enemies that we fight in the Christian life? Well, first, we have to deal with the sin in our own hearts. That's a major enemy, constantly rising up to keep us from honoring the Lord as we know we should. Second, there are pressures and temptations that come at us from the outside, from the culture around us. And the third is Satan himself, who's always at work to seek to destroy our faith, even to destroy our lives. Every Christian has a fight on their hands if they're going to persevere in the faith. But it's not a bad fight. A bad fight might be one that's all our fault. We brought it on ourselves. 
a bad fight might be one that we're fighting for the wrong reason. That it's uh, it's a desire, not a desire to honor the Lord, but some selfish reason. A bad fight might be one in which we don't look to the Lord for help. We proudly think we can handle it on our own. Well, in contrast, the Christian's fight is described as a good fight. We are fighting true enemies of the faith. We are fighting for the glory of God, and we are fighting in the strength that he provides. Well, Paul gives two aspects to the good fight. First one is this. Every believer is responsible for God to hold firm to the Christian faith revealed in the scriptures. Hold firm to the Christian faith revealed in the scriptures. Faith is the objective aspect of this fight. It gives us the content that we are to believe and hold too tightly if we're going to stand firm. Patrick Fairbairn <coughs> made this observation. Quote this on your outline. <coughs> he says, faith fitly goes first here, for it is this which provides the Christian combatant with his only valid standing ground for the conflict and supplies him with the weapons which alone can enable him to repel the assaults of the adversary and counterwork his devices. There's a lot in this quote uh, that helps us to see the absolute necessity of keeping faith. He said it's our only valid standing ground. We need to know what the faith, we need to know what the content of our faith is. For example, we need to know who God is. We need to know who, you know, who is the God. He's, our, he's, our, he's the triune God. Actually, Paul gave us some great help from that, from his doxology back in verse 17, when he tells us he's the sovereign king. He's the king. We need to know that. We need to have that in mind. We need to know that our God is sovereign over all. We know that he's eternal. He has no end. He has no beginning. He's eternal. That means he's de- independent. He depends on nothing or no one for his existence. That means he doesn't change. Our God is immortal or incorruptible. I mean, he's perfect in every aspect of his nature and his character, and that will never change. He's invisible because God is spirit. So he's not only God eternal in the manner of how long, he's also infinite as far as where he is, which is everywhere. He fills all things. He is the one true God. There are so many little g gods, and the only, there's only one true God. Every one of those truths actually give us firm standing ground when we fight the good fight. We also need to know what the Ten Commandments are. We need to know them. We need to have a clear understanding of what the gospel is. We need to have an ever-increasing knowledge of the word of God itself. I mean, we need to know what the history that the scriptures teach us. We need to know those promises. We need to be very aware of what the commands are. We need to know what the warnings are that are in the scriptures. We need to understand the Psalms, which actually give us prayer and, and praise. We need to know the, the didactic teachings that are, that are there, especially like in the letters, for example, like in First Timothy. The scripture serves as a sword of the spirit as we stand against just the manifold temptations that come against us. So the scriptures give us the principles 
that we need to follow as we interact with people with biblical love. We need the scriptures to show us how to do that. The scriptures guide us on how to live our lives to the glory of God. The scriptures guide us on how to do our work to the glory of God. The scriptures guide us on how to live as a Christian family. The scriptures guide us on what our responsibilities are as a citizen of the nation in which we live. All of this is the content of our faith. And it tells us what we're supposed to believe and how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to act. We'll never succeed if we do not hold firm to the Christian faith. That's a priority. But there's a second aspect to this good fight. Every believer is responsible to maintain a good conscience before God, to maintain a good conscience before God and man. The conscience is something that Paul has talked about quite a bit. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, he spoke of the goal of instruction being a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So you got the conscience and faith both there from the very beginning. In chapter 3, verse 9, he talks about how the deacons need to hold on to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Same emphasis there. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, talked about Paul talked about how he served the Lord with a clear conscience. Holding firm to the faith is vital, but without a good conscience, we will never fight the good fight. We just won't. Here's again what Patrick Fairborn had to say about the conscience. He said, a good conscience is here faith's necessary handmaid. For the contest is in the strictest sense a moral one. And a deprivation of the conscience, meaning the conscience being depraved, is a virtual abandonment of the struggle. It is yielding to the adversary an entrenchment in the citadel or in the fort. What do we mean by good conscience? It means that we are honestly, truly seeking to obey the word of God, not just going through the motions. It means when we sin, we go to the Lord to, for forgiveness, and we seek to honestly address that sin in our lives. It means we make things right with people when we sin against them. Those are all things that are connected with having a, living with a good conscience. A good conscience doesn't mean that you always do everything perfectly, but it does mean that we take God's call to holiness seriously because when we get to the place that we are tolerating and excusing sin then we have rejected the need for a good conscience john calvin said a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies in other words we'll be willing to change what we believe in order to line up with the sin that we are tolerating and embracing we will change what we believe to line up with what we are excusing in our lives or other people's lives even. As Fairborn says, when our conscience is depraved, we have abandoned the struggle. We've given it up. And the enemy of our faith is now entrenched right within our fortress. He's there with us. As a result, defeat is certain. It's going to happen. We need God's help not to sin against our conscience. Then Paul raises the stakes 
on how crucial it is to keep faith and a good conscience. Start back at verse 18 again and read through into verse 20. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So our third point is this. Those who reject, those who reject their responsibility to maintain a good conscience are in danger of suffering shipwreck in regard to their faith. You are either keeping faith and a good conscience or you're rejecting it. Grammatically, the word here for rejected is tied directly to the need for a good conscience. That's what he's specifically talking about, that he's talking about rejecting. When the, the, literally, the word rejection here means to thrust away, to repudiate, to refuse. So this is not something that the person gets into and he's just completely unaware that it's happening. They know they're not they're doing the wrong thing. They know they're not living consistently with the scriptures, and they're doing it on purpose. When they feel conviction, they push it away. They will also often push away committed Christians in their life because that only reminds them that they need to repent. Even if the Christian doesn't say anything about the issue, just the fact that they're there is uncomfortable. The last thing they want to do is go to a church that teaches the scriptures. Conscience is going to constantly bother them. So they find ways to tolerate and even excuse what they know full well is not right. Oftentimes there is still some sense of wanting to continue to have a spiritual focus in life. That seems to have happened a number of times here. So they gravitate toward those who are able to give reasons on why the Bible really can't be fully trusted while at the same time expressing an admiration for Jesus in some way. But in reality, they've rejected Jesus Christ as the Lord of their lives. There's so much at stake in Paul's command to fight the good fight by keeping faith and a good conscience. If a person is going to persevere in their Christian faith, this is not an option. So these are clear warnings that every Christian has to take seriously. Because if we continue to thrust aside the need for a good conscience, then we're heading directly for a shipwreck in regard to our faith. When our faith fails to guide the way that we live our, that we live our life, then our, then our faith is going to end up crashing down around us. And this person then having kind of turned aside from those fundamental foundational truths of the Christian faith are going to find themselves having no real anchor in life, going to run aground, if you keep this whole shipwreck uh, imagery going on, run aground on the rocks of skepticism and, and unbelief, a shipwreck. Paul intends for this to be taken as a serious warning. No Christian should say that will never happen to me. To further highlight the danger, Paul gives the names of two people that Timothy is well aware of, Hymenaeus and Alexander. 
Now, Hymenaeus is also mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read what this says, 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 18. Paul says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So Hymenaeus is one, Paul says over in 2 Timothy, is one who did not handle the word of truth rightly or accurately. And this led to further ungodliness on his part. He talks about this, this unbelief spreading like gangrene. You could even use the word cancer, spreading like a cancer. <coughs> He went astray from the truth, it says here, by saying the resurrection had already happened. We don't know exactly all that was going on here. I mean, they, they may have been saying that believers had already entered into the glorified state, even though they were still living on earth. There could be some kind of perfectionism going on here or something. I don't know. It could also be that they're saying the final resurrection wasn't really going to happen. It's just an allegory. Uh, it's not a real thing. Uh, so... Whatever has happened has already taken place, and so ended up denying the doctrine of resurrection. Whatever it was, we don't know exactly the case. But it was something that was not consistent with the scriptures. In 2 Timothy 4, 4 14, uh, 14 and 15, Alexander is mentioned. We're pretty for sure Hymenaeus is the same guy, because that's, not a, that's a, not a common name. Alexander is quite a common name, so... but. There's a good possibility this is the same guy. So 2 Timothy 4, 14 to 15, <coughs> he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will pay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. There's also an Alexander uh, who is mentioned in Acts 19. Uh, this was an Alexander who was trying to help calm a mob in Ephesus who were hostile toward the gospel teachings of of Paul and his fellow workers. Uh, and so since Timothy is ministering in Ephesus, it may be that that Alexander is the same person here. We don't know those things for sure. But in any case, these were two men who were well known to both Paul and Timothy. Men who at one point professed faith in Christ, were active in the church, maybe even in leadership. They were clearly trusted by others who heard them teach and listen to what they had to say in the church. But their teaching actually led people away from the faith. <clears throat> and that's because their own faith had already suffered shipwreck. Now there's a number of times in the scriptures when Christians are solemnly warned about falling away from the faith. It's important to think about this. The Bible teaches us that all true believers will persevere in their faith all the way to the end of their life and, of course, through eternity. Even though they may have serious struggles, failures, and so forth along the way. I'm going to read how we describe that as far as the, the, the perseverance of the saints, as far as our church's statement of faith. Let me read this one to you. It says, Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, that's in Christ, and sanctified by His Spirit, will never totally and finally fall away from the state of grace, 
but shall certainly persevere to the end. However, though they may fall fall through neglect and temptation into sin, by which they grieve the Holy Spirit, and come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, bringing reproach on the church and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be renewed again unto repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So, those who are true believers will persevere in their faith all the way through to the end. But there are warnings like this sprinkled all through the scriptures to keep our attention, to help us to be sober-minded, serious-minded, to remind us that we must fight the good faith, that we must keep faith and keep a good conscience, that those things are not options. We need to take the warnings seriously. It's also important to see here that Paul had not given up on Hymenaeus and Alexander. In verse 20, we read what his response to them was. He says, among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Paul had authority as an apostle that was, of course, unique, along with the other apostles in the early church. He's modeling something here for us that, that is another key aspect of right church order. He is modeling what is often called church discipline. So our last point is this. The church has the sober responsibility. The church has the sober responsibility of corrective discipline for those members who have abandoned the faith in hopes that the Lord will bring them to repentance. Paul says here that he handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan. He used that same expression in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He was admonishing the Corinthian church because a man from their church was living in sin with his father's wife, and they were doing nothing about it. As a matter of fact, they almost seemed to be proud that they were showing such tolerance. Paul didn't think that was a good thing to do. Here's what he says. Well, I'll start in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 5. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. So Paul, as an apostle, is taking responsibility here to discipline this church member who was living in open, unrepentant sin. Now, to their credit, the church actually received this rebuke and actually took appropriate action themselves as well. Church discipline is a hard thing to do, but it's not mean and it's not vindictive. It was Jesus himself who told us that this is what he wanted his church to do. He laid it out for us in Matthew 18. 
says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So the process that Jesus gives, it starts with private conversations, uh, probably multiple conversations of trying to address this issue. Then another couple of fellow believers might be brought in, you know, to have to continue these private conversations about whatever the issue is. If that doesn't take care of it, then the issue is ultimately brought to the church. At this point, it becomes more public. And if the person is unwilling to listen to their church, um, Jesus says to consider them as a Gentile, which means to consider them as a non-Christian in spite of what they claim because they are not acting like a Christian. And every step is to be carried out with love and with grace. The hope is that God will use this to bring the person to their senses. Now, Paul describes this as handing them over to Satan. It sounds pretty severe, doesn't it? That's because it is. The person is, seems to be, in some sense, being removed from God's care and protection and under the power of Satan instead. And God uses his church to carry this out. Satan's purpose is to destroy. He will do all he can to completely destroy the person's faith and even their life. But it's vital to see that Paul did this in hope that it would make a difference in their life. And all the mental, emotional, social, physical suffering that might result from this. The hope is, Paul says, that they will be taught not to blaspheme, not to speak against the Lord to, uh, in, in ways that they had been doing. This might be, could be described as what you might call severe grace, we don't know what the end result was for Hymenaeus and Alexander, but we do know that the man who was disciplined in the Corinthian church repented and ended up coming back to the church. We find we see that in, the, in 2 Corinthians. So again, this is a discipline not meant to be vindictive, but to bring correction. All of this is written in these final verses of chapter 1 to highlight for us how important it is for every minister and every Christian to fight the good fight. We must take seriously the command to hold to the gospel, to hold to the biblical faith, and we must take seriously the command to keep a good conscience. And we can do that by God's grace. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. Sometimes your words are um, very pointed and um, maybe even hard to hear, maybe uncomfortable to hear. But I thank you for the truth that you reveal to us. Lord, I ask that you would uh, enable us to, to, again, to make application as it fits in our own life. Every one of us who are Christians, we have a responsibility 
and as well as a desire to pursue, to, to go forward in our Christian life. Lord, help us to be able to hold firm to the faith, hold firm to the gospel that we know is true, to not compromise. Help us to be people who really take seriously the command to keep a good conscience and the way we live out that faith. Lord, every one of us struggle in this area. None of us do it right all the time. We blow it in so many ways. But, Lord, continue to bring us back, to bring us back, to bring us back, and to give us the strength and the help and the insight and even help from friends as we go through times that are really challenging for us. Thank you for your grace toward us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. Every one of us are sinners who stand under the condemnation of God because of our sin. But at the same time, we have a Savior that we can trust for salvation. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I realize I have blown it in so many ways. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, sinners like me. I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I commit my life to live with him as the Lord of my life for the rest of my days. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off or those watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.